Today is the last day that we will be in the book of Daniel, and um, it's been a process to come to the final part of this book. Um, it's a big chunk of text here at the end, and the title of our message is Scoping the End. The way that, that prophecy works in the Bible is, is a complicated thing. Um, looking at texts like the one that we have this morning is not easy. It's a bit of work. We have the complication of understanding not only what's going on in our times, but when we look at the Bible, it becomes exponentially more difficult. See, first we have to understand the divine author of Scripture, the Holy Spirit who inspires human authors to use their own personalities and their own styles to write God's word with their own unique perspective. And at times, especially when it comes to the prophets, they didn't even always understand what they were putting down. Especially when it pertained to events that were beyond their own lives. What's happening in our text is exactly what I'm speaking of here. We can illustrate this by, by the idea of a, of a telescope. Now, it's as if Daniel has been given a vision and he's standing on top of a mountain. And he has a telescope, but he can peer to other peaks that are out on the horizon. And he can see the top of the next mountain and the next mountain and the next mountain, and that's what's in his vision. But what he can't see, what's not in the vision, what's not been given to him by God, are the valleys in between. He doesn't know the gaps. He wasn't meant to know the gaps. And to a certain extent, neither were we. It's only when prophecy becomes history to us, as a good chunk of this text is, that we get to fill in the gaps. This is the end of the book of Daniel that prepares us for the end. This is what happens sometimes in Bible prophecy, even for the prophets themselves. They didn't understand, and that's okay, because they could still trust the inspiring spirit of God, and even when they didn't understand the details, they trust the character of the one who gave it to them. Now, the best example of this is surely Jesus. When the prophets of the Old Testament predicted that the Messiah would come, and they were right in foreseeing that he would come, but they never foresaw that he would come twice. And they never foresaw that he would come the first time in the manner in which he did. Today, we see Daniel dealing with some of these very issues as we close out this series on living as exiles. Now, it was two weeks ago that we came to this portion of, of Daniel, and I introduced this section and showed that this is actually all one unit, starting in chapter 10. It's all one unit, and Daniel's vision was delayed in that the, the angel that came to him with this vision was delayed by another demonic force. And the conflict of the whole thing is war, war in the heavenly realms. And these are parts two and three, really, of that final vision. 
Now, if you'll bear with me, there's a lot of text to read. I'm going to do it in sections, and you can tell by the way my voice is that uh, I'm not, at least I don't sound 100%. Um, believe me, I, I, I could lift a bull. This, no, I couldn't do that this morning. Um, I sound a little bit worse than I actually am, but um, we're going to get into this bit of text and, and do it in pieces. But what is being said here for both the people of God and for us is that God's people will endure conflict, contempt, coercion, but the wise will choose to trust in God's care for them despite all of these other realities. But before we get into this word this morning, I want to pray. Father, I ask that you would give, um, give me grace and empower me to be able to speak better than I ought to and to be able to communicate with your wisdom, not my own. We pray that we would have ears and hearts that would listen with grace that is beyond our own capacity and that we might find something in this text that encourages us to rest and to confide and to find comfort in one who is willing to scope out history for us to confirm to us that you indeed are in control. And so we ask that you would bless us with these simple things that, that make our everyday so much more meaningful in light of the character of the one who is walking with us. And we ask this all in your son's precious name. Amen. Scoping the end. And now I will show you the truth, the angel said to Daniel. Behold, three more kings shall arise in Persia, and a fourth shall be far richer than all of them. And when he has come strong, become strong through his riches, he shall stir up all against the kingdom of Greece. And then a mighty king shall arise, who shall rule with great dominion and do as he wills. And as soon as he has arisen, his kingdom shall be broken and divided towards the four winds of heaven, but not to his posterity, nor according to the authority to which he ruled, for his kingdom shall be plucked up to go to others besides these." Then the king of the south shall be strong, but the one of his princes shall be stronger than he and shall rule. And his authority shall be great authority. After some years they shall make an alliance. And the daughter of the king of the south shall be, come to the king of the north and make an agreement. And she shall not retain the strength of her arm, and he and his arm shall not endure. But she shall be given up, and her attendants, and he who fathered her, and he who supported her in those times." And from a branch, from her roots, one shall arise in his place, and he shall come against the army and enter the fortress of the king of the north, and he shall deal with them and shall prevail. And he shall carry off to Egypt their gods with their metal images and their precious vessels of silver and gold, and for some years he shall refrain from attacking the king of the north, and then the latter shall come into the realm of the king of the south, but shall return to his own land. His sons shall wage war and assemble a multitude of great forces which shall keep coming and overflow the pass through. And again shall carry the war 
as far as his fortress. And then the king of the south shall move with rage and shall come out and fight against the king of the north. And he shall raise a great multitude, but it shall be given into, the, into his hand. And when the multitude is taken away, the heart shall be exalted, and he shall cast down tens of thousands, but he shall not prevail. For the king of the south shall again raise a multitude greater than the first, and after some years he shall come with a great army and abundant supplies. And in those days many shall arise against the king of the south, and the violent among your own people shall lift up themselves in order to fulfill the vision, but they shall fail. Then the king of the north shall come and throw up siege works and take a well-fortified city, and the forces of the south shall not stand, or even his best troops, for there shall be no strength to stand. And he who comes against him shall do as he wills, and none shall stand before him, and he shall, take, and he shall stand in the glorious land with destruction in his hand. And he shall set his face to come with strength of his whole kingdom, and he shall bring terms of an agreement and perform them, and he shall give them to the daughter of women to destroy the kingdom, and he shall stand, not stand or be to his advantage. Afterwards, he shall turn his face to the coastlands and shall capture many of them, but a commander shall put an end to his insolence. Indeed, he shall turn his insolence back upon him. Then he shall turn his face back towards the fortresses of his own land, but he shall stumble and fall and shall not be found. Then shall arise in his place one who shall send an extractor of tribute for the glory of the kingdom, but with a few days he shall be broken, neither in anger nor in battle. And I pause there. This morning I'm going to differentiate between when we're reading God's word and when I'm just speaking. Um, this morning, what you find in the text, be it strange that I'm presenting this morning, is really something that would be information you would find in any good world civilization book. Any book of history could tell you the meanings of the things that we've just read here. If you picked up the copy of, for instance, uh, Cambridge Ancient History, Volume 1, you would find what we've just read that was prophecy to Daniel is actually history. Verses 2 there, it speaks of the kingdom of Persia, of four rulers, Cyrus the Great being the first, ruling at the time of the vision, and then three more kings afterwards. They go by the names of Cambius, Smyrdas, Darius, and Xerxes, the one who is far richer than the others. Xerxes was responsible for, unfortunately, awaking the Greek empire that comes next in verses 3 through 4. This leads to the emergence of the mighty king, Alexander the Great, who would eventually be the downfall of the whole Persian empire. Alexander, though, if you know your world history, dies as he comes back from India. He was, in 13 years, he was able to conquer the then-known world but he dies on his return and leaves no heir. And so, as it says in the text, his kingdom was divided to the four winds of heaven by four generals. Two generals are the ones, the king of the north and the south, that are in the text, that are discussed here. 
The reason why they are is um, God gives Daniel a vision that focuses in on where he is at. What part of world history pertains to the people of God? There were two generals. One was the Ptolemies and the other were the Seleucids. And they back and forth jostled for territory and right in between them was the Holy Land. And so sort of there's, there's a game of hot potato that goes back and forth, only this time you want the potato in your hands. And they're both jostling for control over this trade route territory, which is the Holy Land. The Ptolemies were the kings of the south in Egypt, and the Seleucids the kings of the north. Ptolemy I, Seleucus I, they're captains that become the, the leaders of the northern and southern territories. Seleucid kings take on the title of Antiochus. Seleucid kings um, end up warring against the Ptolemies in the south. Ptolemy I clashes with Antiochus II. They come to an agreement, but the peace doesn't last. And so, as is typical in the ancient world, they offer up a a daughter as a political alliance and a marriage. Ptolemy III, Seleucid II, they attack each other in retaliation because the marriage falls apart and the sister is murdered. It creates war from 246 to 241. The northern kingdoms go into the south and plunder them and, and take their gods back with them. Antiochus III, known as the Great, ends up being the one who retakes Palestine from Ptolemaic control. He counterattacks with his infantry. Some of the text here that talks about this war, he, he comes with 70,000 infantry against 62,000. And there's all these numbers that I can give you in dates and people, but all of it is history now. And so what do you do with history and application? It, was, it wasn't even meant to be an applicational history for Daniel. Now it isn't for us. What eventually comes is a, a dynastic marriage, another attempt to control enemies. Antiochus III ends up sending his daughter, Cleopatra, this is not the Cleopatra from, with Mark Antony that come, lives 100 years later. This is the one earlier one. Because of pride and overconfidence, he thinks that this marriage would um, end up setting things right, but it doesn't end well because his daughter actually switches sides and joins the Ptolemies and fights against him. She rules Egypt after the death of her husband until her son, Ptolemy V, grows up. Unfortunately, her son was overly ambitious as well as his grandfather who is in control in the north. Antiochus III ends up going into Roman territory and sort of waking a sleeping giant that pushes him back. We pick up here in verse 21. In his place shall arise a contemptible person to whom royal majesty has not been given. He shall come in without warning and obtain the kingdom by flatteries. Armies shall be utterly swept away before him and broken, even the prince of the covenant. 
And from that time that an alliance is made with him, he shall act deceitfully, and he shall become strong with small people. Without warring, he shall come into the richest parts of the province, and he shall do what neither his fathers nor his father's fathers have done, scattering among them plunder, spoil, and goods, and he shall devise plans against strongholds, but only for a time. And he shall stir up his power and his heart against the kingdom of the south with great army. And the king of the south shall wage war with an exceedingly great and mighty army, but he shall not stand, for plots shall be devised against him. Even those who eat his food shall break him. His army shall be swept away, and many shall fall down slain. And as for those two kings, their hearts shall not be bent on do, shall be bent on doing evil, and they shall speak lies at the same table but to no avail. For the end is yet to be the time appointed, and he shall return to his land with great wealth, but his heart shall be set against the holy covenant, and he shall work his will and return to his own land. And at that time appointed he shall return and come into the south, but it shall not be this time as it was before. For ships of Kittim shall come against him, and he shall be afraid and withdraw and he shall turn back and be enraged and take against him his holy covenant. He shall turn back and pay his attention to those who forsake the holy covenant. Forces from him shall appear and profane the temple and fortresses. And he shall take away the regular burnt offering. And he shall set up the abomination that makes desolation. He shall seduce with flattery those who violate the covenant, but the people who know their God shall stand firm and take action. And the wise among the people shall make Many understand, though some days they shall stumble by sword and flame, by captivity and plunder, they shall stumble and they shall receive a little help, and many shall join themselves to them with flattery. And some of the wise shall stumble so that they may be refined, purified, and made white until the time of the end, for it still awaits the appointed time. My voice is giving out on me here, but... What the text that we've read here is essentially history that was already covered actually in Daniel chapter 8. This tells the story of Antiochus IV, Epiphanes, who ends up hating the Jews. He comes into the Holy Land by flattery. It's, it's interesting that his, his father, Antiochus III, ends up dying mysteriously. Antiochus IV, his son, was under capture by the Romans. And then, as he's called in chapter 8, a, a, a crafty man, a, a, a man who's able to flatter and connive and manipulate, somehow he's let free. He comes back, and then his brother, who is supposed to reign, dies mysteriously as well. It seems that he made an agreement with the Romans and then had a bit of uh, sort of spy tactics that allows him to get into power. He then ends up ruling with an iron fist. He comes into the Jewish temple. He tries to make the Jewish people bow to his will, unlike any other ruler before him. And he ends up being this contemptible person that breaks his, his word, breaks agreements, puts down opposition. 
He focuses attention on the Jews plundering their temple, taking away their riches, erecting his own fortress, his own military station in Jerusalem to keep an eye on the people. He enters the temple with a meteorite that we, we think is the abomination that makes desolate. And so he's, he's tyrannizing the people. He sacrifices a, a pig on the altar to, the, to Zeus. He breaks numerous laws of the Mosaic Covenant. He massacres Jewish people, sells them into slavery, at least the ones that were the most outspoken in opposition to him. He incites the revolt of the Maccabeans, which we discussed in chapter 8 as the Hanukkah. Those who are competent, that, that God has given them um, an ability to, to withstand him, are the wise in the text. Verse 33, that know that no matter what he does, they will achieve their ends and be able to withstand him. Now it's at this point that we, we close out history there in verse 35. I'm not sure what's going on completely in this text, but I do know this, that while Antiochus Epiphanes was surely an evil man, the person who is described in verse 36 on to the end of the chapter is not the same person. There are some commentators out there that believe that this person is the same one, but the descriptions of him are so otherworldly that Antiochus, as we know him in history, cannot fit this description. And it is in this moment where, remember I said that Daniel is scoping out the end of history, but he doesn't always know the valleys in between the peaks. We are in a valley right now in between the peaks. And there is a peak, there's a, a, a gap between verse 35 and 36. And the person that I'm about to describe, I believe, is someone who is yet to come. And the king shall do as he wills, and he shall exalt himself and magnify himself above every god. That's not something that Antiochus did. And he shall speak astonishing things against the god of gods, and he shall prosper till the indignation is accomplished. For what is decreed shall be done. He shall pay no attention to the gods of his fathers or to the one beloved by women, and he shall pay, not pay attention to any other god, and he shall magnify himself above all. And he shall honor the gods of fortresses instead of these, the god whom his fathers did not know. He shall honor with his gold and silver, with precious stones and costly gifts. And he shall deal with the strongest fortress and the help of a foreign god, and those who acknowledge him shall load with honor, and he shall make them rulers over many, and shall divide the land for a price. At the time of the end, the king of the south shall attack him, but the king of the north shall rush upon him like a whirlwind, with chariots and horsemen, with many ships. And he shall come into countries, and shall overflow and pass through. He shall come into the glorious land, and tens of thousands shall fall. But these shall be delivered out of his hand, Edom and Moab and the many of the Ammonites. He shall stretch out his hand against the countries, and the land of Egypt shall not escape. He shall become ruler of the treasures of gold and of silver and all the precious things of Egypt, 
and the Libyans and the Cushites shall follow in his train. But news from the east and the north shall alarm him, and he shall go out with great fury to destroy and devote many to destruction. He shall pitch his palatial tents between the sea and the glorious holy lands, yet he shall come to his end with none to help him. There is someone who is contemptible in Antiochus Epiphanes, and then there is this man who is more contemptible and does whatever he pleases because he's able to coerce anyone to do what he wants. The story shifts. The description is of someone who is like Antiochus but simply can't be. This person cannot be him because they are described in this larger-than-life way. And the language in verse 40 is the time of the end. That is not when Antiochus lived. Verses 40 through 44 describe someone extending their power over the entire earth. Antiochus never achieved this. The death of this person is not how Antiochus dies. Antiochus seems to anticipate this person who will come later and act as he did, but in much greater ways. This person will be characterized by the ability to do seemingly whatever he pleases without anyone being able to stop him. To put it in biblical terms, Antiochus anticipates someone who will come later, and that individual is described in his terms. Kind of the way the Psalms will describe a king that will come later who Jesus fulfills. It's very similar. The, the king that is described in the Psalms, the, the ideal king anticipates Jesus coming later. In Daniel chapter 11, verse 36, this man has audacious pride, cosmically inflates himself, exalts himself above everyone and every other god. His pride and fall is described similarly to how Satan is inflated and he falls in Isaiah 14. These verses seem to look forward to someone who I don't believe has yet arrived. This is not history for us, but prophecy. If I was to go elsewhere in the scripture, I would say that this is the person that 2 Thessalonians describes as the man of lawlessness, known elsewhere in scripture as the Antichrist. The Antichrist is a pawn of Satan himself and appears to give allegiance to the devil, which is described in verses 37 through 39. He appears to have an insatiable desire to oppress and enslave others in verse 38. And verses 40 through the end of the chapter describe future events which I would caution anyone in trying to nail down and look at in the future and say this is exactly how it will happen. They are intentionally vague, ambiguous, ambiguous. The point is not to know God's plan, but to know that he is indeed in control and that he has a plan, that he will carry it out with precision and care for his own glory and for our good, but he isn't laying out a map for us to follow. Where we turn in chapter 12 is reminding us of this very thing. 
At that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who has charge over your people. Their angel reminds Daniel. And there shall be a time of trouble such as never has been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. Then comes verses 2 and 3, which are some of the most unique verses in the whole Bible. You would think that our gospel hope would be more clearly defined in the whole Bible than it actually is. When I, when I describe the core gospel to somebody, I do it in terms of what Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, verses 3 and 4, that Christ died according to the scriptures, that he was buried, and that he rose on the third day according to the scriptures. That is the core of our belief. The cross and the resurrection. But did you know that there is nowhere in the entire Bible, sorry, in the entire Old Testament, that resurrection, bodily resurrection, is described nowhere in the whole Old Testament, save maybe one other verse, Isaiah 26, 19, other than these two verses right here. This is the only hint at bodily resurrection in the whole Old Testament. What Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15 is that if Christ is not raised, we have no hope. That's how crucial the resurrection is to our faith. Yet it's not in the Old Testament, except right here. This was the hope that Daniel was given. That God cares for his people. This is very closely connected to the last passage. And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. Not only is this a promise of bodily resurrection, but it is a double resurrection. That some will be resurrected to life and some to contempt. And those who are wise shall shine like the brightness in the sky above, and those who turn many and, and those who turn many to righteousness like the stars forever and ever. We read of this archangel Michael who heard about, we heard about in chapter 10, who fights for God's people. Again, he comes up. But you, Daniel, shut up the words and seal the book until the time of the end, and many shall run to and fro, and knowledge shall increase. And it's almost as if the book ends right there. Daniel fights for God's people during a time of great distress. And God meets that distress with his delivering angel. The deliverance is spelled out in verses 2 and 3. Our ultimate hope actually doesn't come during this lifetime. It comes after we die, when we're raised. This is the only explicit reference to the resurrection in the entire Old Testament. And it's one of those reminders that God's ways are truly higher than our ways. It depicts the righteous that are wise because they trust in God's deliverance and the wicked are not because they trust in something else. That's the ultimate hope. 
And finally, the book concludes. Then I, Daniel, looked, and behold, two others stood, one on this bank of the stream and one on the other bank of the other stream. And some said, someone said to that man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream, how long shall it be to the end of these wonders? And I heard the man clothed in linen who was above the waters of the stream. He raised his right hand and his left hand toward heaven and swore by him who lives forever that it would be for a time, times, and half a time. And that when the shattering of the power of the holy people comes to an end and all these things would be finished. I heard, but I did not understand. Then I said, O my Lord, what shall be the outcome of these things? He said, Go your way, Daniel, for the words are shut up and sealed until the time of the end. Many shall purify themselves and make themselves white and be refined, but the wicked shall act wickedly, and none of the wicked shall understand, but those who are wise shall understand. And from the time that the regular burnt offering is taken away and the abomination that makes desolate is set up, there shall be 1,290 days. Blessed is he who waits and arrives at the 1,335th days. But go your way till the end, and you shall rest and shall stand in your allotted place at the end of the days. This is almost like a little addendum on the book. It concludes with Daniel back on the banks of the river Tigris. There are two celestial beings present one hovering over the water on one side and another on the other side. And they could be Gabriel, they could be Michael, we're really not sure. It could be God himself. We can't be certain. But Daniel overhears a conversation between the two beings as one asks the other the timing of future events. And he says, it'll be a time, a time, and half a time to finish and break the cycle of wickedness against God's people. But it will come in the most unlikely of ways. At a time, as it seems lost, the power of the holy people is shattered. And we don't know specifically what that means. Daniel doesn't understand. And like us, he wants to know more. But notice that Daniel is not expressing lack of understanding about the timing of events, but about why the events happen. Why will the wicked fail to understand the overall purpose of God's plan. Why is this the way God works? It's puzzling, isn't it? How do these, those who directly oppose God, not see that they can't possibly beat the Almighty? Why don't they understand? And such is the nature of pride that blinds us to our inherent vulnerabilities and weaknesses. Clouds our judgment. Verse 9, Daniel's told himself to go his way. Remember that the wise will understand. It doesn't mean that they will have all things figured out because God gave a vision. But he did understand the implication. He must trust the author of the vision and the deliverer who ensures triumph for God's people despite what they will endure. This is the epitome of the wisdom in the book of Daniel. Daniel's given a final comfort. He's told that he would rest and stand in his allotted place. 
I think this is Daniel being told that he's going to die, yet he would be raised to stand again in a glorious final resurrection of the dead. God orchestrates events in surprising ways, that's for sure, to his ultimate glory and our ultimate good. We can be strengthened, as Daniel was, by the knowledge that our ultimate triumph will come. But Daniel is given the opportunity to see that the enemy after enemy will rise and fall, yet the people of God, despite all of this tribulation that they will go through, they will endure. Of all the enemies that we face, foreign, domestic, spiritual, psychological, the greatest enemy that we ever encounter is our own mortality. It's death itself. Death is the greatest enemy in Scripture because it severs us from what we were meant to have. Physical death severs us from the life that God wants us to have. Spiritual death severs us from himself. It separates us from him. The Bible speaks of this spiritual death which involves a separation from all the things that God desires for our good especially life with him. So death, prior to God's intervention, is the great enemy that eternally distances us from his designed good. But thanks to God, there is an incredible work currently going on of his warring activity in working things out to overcome all of these enemies, including this great one. And this is where we find this passage intersecting the gospel story. God sent his son who knew no sin to be sin for us so that we might become the righteousness of God and enjoy the life that he designed for us as new creations. And in order for this to happen, the greatest enemy, which is death, has to be overcome. The son of man did that just for his people. 1 Corinthians chapter 15 proclaims that we will enjoy the first fruits of his resurrection and victory one day. And while this victory has already been secured, the consummation of this victory is yet to be seen. I'm waiting to have victory over the effects of sin and death fully in my own life. I'm waiting for the day when every knee will bow and tongue will confess that Jesus is Lord. And so I wait with expectation and anticipation along with Daniel and other saints, trusting that Christ will triumph over every enemy for his glory and my good. God's people will endure conflict, contempt, coercion, but the wise will trust in his triumph over all. I'm going to put these up on the screen. I'm going to ask the musicians and vocalists to come up. I want to go through our text um, looking at um, the application for communion. So I invite you up and I invite you to stand.
If I could have our um, elders come up. common resistance to Christ's kingdom is not the, the the many armies that are described in the text or the, the people that might come in the future such as the man of lawlessness the, usually the resistance that I feel towards God's kingdom is something that I don't find outside of me it's usually right here it's usually me that's where I resist him when I pray the Lord's Prayer, Thy Kingdom Come, I almost need to be speaking to myself in the mirror because I'm the one who gets in the way of His kingdom most often. Christ's rule isn't something I faced outside of myself, the conflict that is in it. Internally, I seek to be faithful to Jesus, yet consistently I, I seem to be choosing my old self over Him. God's desiring to be graciously working out his salvation, yet it's my heart that needs to get aligned with him. It's his gracious power, moment by moment, that is that I get to choose whether I want to participate in to see his kingdom goals becoming more a part of me in an incremental way, in a disciplined way. It's true that there might be opposition from the outside as well. We surely will endure conflict over applying the grace of God in our lives. That was a true reality. But sometimes there is opposition on the outside. People who say that what we believe is old-fashioned. Or maybe they want to even defame or slander our reputation. That is what God's people have faced throughout history and they will face all the way to the end until it says that he will wipe away every tear and every reason for us to feel that sort of pain. The passage that we read today, albeit a long one, ends with righteousness reigning. The greatest realization of all is that one day the Christian's hope will be realized. The dead in Christ will rise and the judgment of all will occur and the justice of God will be poured out so that righteousness will be in the atmosphere of creation when all things align to him. He is with us and us with him in perfect presence. That's where we hope that he would give us that, a glimpse of it right here and now. As you take of the elements this morning, would you reflect upon how has his kingdom come to you? What opposition is there still to it? And how might he reign in you more completely?